You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Modern Art of Education. This is Lecture 5, entitled Freeing Volition in the Human Organism, given on August 9, 1923. Yesterday I tried to describe the way thinking becomes independent around the seventh year and feeling around the fourteenth year thus releasing themselves from the physical organism. Today I want to show how volition gradually presses on toward independence during the growth processes. The human will remains connected to the organism longer than does thinking and feeling. Until about 20 or 21, the human will depends very much on organic activity, in particular on the way the breathing continues into the blood's circulation and on the way through the inner warmth that has developed the blood circulation then takes hold of the motor organization the blood circulation takes hold of the force arising in the legs feet arms and hands when we move transforming it into a manifestation of volition it can be said that volition as a whole, in a child, even up to 15 and 21, depends on the way in which the forces of the organism work into movement. Teachers, more than anyone else, must cherish the power to observe such things without preconceptions. They must be able to notice when a child is energetic or predisposed to an energetic will. For example, when a child walks whether the heel is placed firmly on the ground. It indicates a less energetic will if the child uses the front part of the foot and has a tripping gait. Even after the fifteenth year, however, this is still all an outer, physical expression of volition. The way the legs are placed, the capacity to prolong a movement of the arms into dexterity of the fingers... Not until around twenty is the will released from the organism in the same way that feeling was released at about fourteen and thinking around seven with the change of teeth. The outer processes that are revealed by the liberated thinking are very striking and can readily be perceived. The change of teeth is a remarkable phenomenon in human life. The emancipation of feeling is less obvious it expresses itself in the development of the so-called secondary sexual organs, for example, the change of voice in a boy or the change of inner life habits of a girl. Feeling, therefore, becomes independent of the physical body in a more inner way. The outer symptoms of the emancipation of the volition at about 20 or 21 are even less obvious and thus they are generally unnoticed in an age that lives in externals. In our day, 
in their own opinion, people are grown up when they reach 14 or 15. Our young people will not recognize that between 15 and 21 they should not only acquire external information but also develop inner character and, most important, volition. Even before 21, young people set themselves up as reformers and teachers, and instead of applying themselves to what they can learn from those who are older, they write pamphlets and that sort of thing. This is understandable in an age that is directed so much toward outer life. The decisive change that occurs around 21 is hidden from people today, because it is completely inner. But this change does indeed take place, and it can be described. Up until some time around the age of 21, one has not yet become a self-contained personality. One is strongly influenced by the earth's gravitational forces with which one struggles. Conventional science will discover much about these things, which are already known to the exact clairvoyance I described yesterday. We have iron within the corpuscles of our circulatory system, and until around 21 those blood corpuscles are such that gravity weighs them down. After the age of 21 our being receives a push upward from below, which also affects the blood. From 21 on we place our feet on the earth in a new way. This is largely unknown today but it is a fundamentally important fact for understanding the human being in relation to education. After 21, with every step we take, a new force works into the human organism from below upward. Previously, our formative forces flowed downward from the head, but at 21, we become self-contained beings, because now the forces that work upward from below have stopped the forces working downward. This downward stream of forces is strongest in smaller children up to the age of seven. The whole process of physical development during this period begins in the head. Up until seven, the head does everything, but when thinking, liberated at the change of teeth, the head frees itself from this strong downward force. Much is known today about the polar nature of magnetism and electricity, but little is known about what occurs in a human being. The fact that forces flow from the head to the feet and from the feet to the head only during the first twenty years of one's life is a very significant spiritual scientific truth, indeed one that is extremely important for education. It is a fact that people today are completely unaware of Yet all education is based on the question of why we educate in the first place. This is the grand question. Because we are human and not animals, we must ask, why do we need to educate people? How do animals grow up and function in life without education? Why can't we acquire what we need in life by simply observing and imitating? Why should teachers intervene in the freedom of children. People seldom ask these questions because such matters are taken for granted. We cannot become real teachers, however, unless we no longer accept this as a matter of fact. 
We must recognize that we interfere with children when we stand before them and try to educate them. And why should children accept it? We consider it an obvious fact that we must educate our children, but in the children's subconscious life they do not. Consequently, we talk a great deal about the behavior of children, but it never occurs to us that to their subconscious we probably appear very comical when we teach something of the outer world, and they are quite justified in their antipathy. The great problem for educators is how to change an object of apathy for children into something they can relate to. We are given the opportunity to do this between the seventh and fourteenth years, because at seven the head, the carrier of thought, is liberated. It no longer generates the downward forces as strongly as it did. It settles down and becomes more concerned with its own affairs. Not until around fifteen does the system of movement assume a more personal quality of volition. The will gains independence from the system of movement and the forces of will, which flowed upward, now begin to work for the first time. All volition works its way upward, all thinking downward. The direction of thought is from heaven to earth. The direction of will is from earth to heaven. Between seven and fifteen, these two functions are not connected, nor do they interpenetrate. In the central system of the body, where the breathing and circulation originate and take place, one's feeling nature is present, and it frees itself at this time. If feelings are properly developed between seven and fifteen, we establish a true relationship between the downward and upward moving forces. It comes down to the fact that between seven and fifteen we must help a child establish the right relationship between thinking and volition, and here it is possible to fail. Because of this we have to educate our children. In animals this interaction between thinking and volition happens automatically, insofar as animals have volition and think in a dreamlike way. In a human being, the interaction of thinking and volition does not occur automatically. In animals, the process is natural. In human beings, it must be the result of a moral process. We can become moral beings because we have the opportunity on earth to unite thinking and volition. The whole human character, insofar as it arises from one's inner being, depends on whether human activity establishes true harmony between thinking and willing. The Greeks brought about this harmony of thinking and volition through gymnastics, evoking the flow of forces from the head into the limbs, which happens naturally in the earliest years of life, and allowing the arms and legs to move through dance and wrestling. Thus the head's activity moves into the limbs, we cannot, however, return to Greek culture, nor can we repeat their civilization. We must now begin with spirit. Thus we must understand how, at twenty-one, the will is freed through inner processes of the system of movement, just as feeling was freed at fourteen and thinking at seven. 
Modern civilization is mostly unaware of this. It is asleep to the insight that education must unify thinking and the will. Thinking was already released at seven, and volition now appears in full freedom as a soul quality around the twentieth year. We cannot acquire true reverence for human development unless we bring spirit into contact with physical human nature, as we showed yesterday with regard to thinking and feeling, and as we have just tried to show with volition. With the twentieth or twenty-first year, we must be able to see the will at work in the organization of human movement, in distinct movements of the fingers and arms, and in individual ways of walking. The young person has been preparing for this, however, since the fifteenth year. If we can thus reclaim a sense of spirit that is no longer a mere association of ideas, a skeleton of spirit, but a living spirit that can even perceive how a person walks or moves the fingers, then we have also reclaimed the human being, and we can now teach. The Greeks' power of perception was instinctive, but it was very slowly lost, to be continued as a tradition until the sixteenth century. The most conspicuous thing about the sixteenth century is that civilized humanity in general lost their understanding of the relationship between thought and volition. Since then people have begun to reflect about education, yet have no regard for the most significant problems in their understanding of the human being. The human being whom they want to educate is simply is simply not understood. This tragedy has existed ever since the 16th century. Today people experience and recognize that education must be transformed. Educational reform organizations are springing up everywhere. People sense that education needs something, but fail to arrive at the essential question, how can thought and volition be harmonized in human beings? People might at least realize that there is too much intellectuality, that education must become less intellectual and begin to educate the will. But the will must not be educated for its own sake. And it is superficial to talk only about which is better, educating thinking or educating the will. There is only one question that is truly practical and relevant to human nature. How can we establish real harmony between thinking which is liberating itself in the head and the will which is becoming free in the limbs. To be educators in the truest sense, we cannot take a one-sided approach. Rather, we must consider the whole being in every aspect. And we cannot do this merely through the usual association of ideas we use to describe spirit today. It is impossible unless we recognize that the prevailing mode of thinking today is merely the corpse of living thinking, as shown in my previous two lectures, and understand that we must work our way toward living thinking through self-development. In this sense, let me frankly present one fundamental principle of all educational reform. I must ask your patience if I say this too bluntly, because to say it almost seems like an insult to modern humanity, and one is always reluctant to be insulting. 
It is peculiar to modern civilization that people understand that education must change, which has led to the countless groups advocating educational reform. People know very well that education is not right and that it needs to change. However, people are just as convinced that they know exactly what education should become, that each group can dictate how we ought to educate. But people should consider the fact that if if education is so poor that it must be reformed fundamentally, they themselves have suffered from it, and a poor education may not have rendered them capable of understanding what is right for education. Today people realize that they have all been educated poorly, but they also assume that they know perfectly well what a good education should be. And these educational reform groups spring up like so many mushrooms. The Waldorf method did not begin with this principle, but from the fact that people do not yet know what education should be and that we must first acquire a basic knowledge of the human being. Consequently, the first seminar for the Waldorf School involved teaching about fundamental human nature, so that teachers would gradually learn what they could not yet know, how children should be taught. It is impossible to know how to teach without an understanding of the human being. The first thing we gave teachers in the seminar was a basic knowledge of the human being. We hoped that by contemplating the true nature of humanity, inner enthusiasm and love for education would grow within them. With such knowledge comes a spontaneous love for humanity that is the very best quality for the practice of education. Pedagogy is a love for humanity, resulting from knowing humanity, and only on this basis can it be established. To those who observe human life as expressed externally today, All the educational reform groups are only an outer indication that people know a great deal about how children should be taught these days. To those who have a deeper understanding of human life, this is not so. The Greeks educated instinctively. They did not talk much about education. Plato was the first to speak a little about education from the perspective of a sort of philosophical miseducation. Before the 16th century, people didn't talk a great deal about education. Indeed, people in general speak very little of what they can do and much more of what they cannot. To those with a deeper knowledge of human nature, too much talk about anything is not a good sign that it is understood. On the contrary, life reveals that when people of any era tend to discuss some subject too much, it is a sign that very little is known about it. So for those who can truly see modern civilization, the, quote, problem of education, close quote, emerged because it is no longer understood how human development occurs. In making a statement such as this, one must, of course, ask forgiveness, and I do this with all due respect. The truth, however, cannot be denied and must be stated. If the Waldorf method achieves anything, it will happen by substituting knowledge of the human being for ignorance of the human being, by replacing mere external anthropology with true spiritual, scientific understanding of inner human nature. This brings living spirit right down 
into the physical human constitution. Some day in the future, it will be no less natural to speak of human nature with understanding than it is to speak with ignorance today. Some day it will be known, even in society as a whole, how thinking is connected with the force that enables the teeth to grow. Some day people will be able to observe how the inner force of feeling is connected to what comes from the chest and is expressed through the lips movement. The variations in lip movements and the control of them through feeling which sets in between 7 and 14 will be a significant outer sign of inner development. And it will be seen how between 14 and 21 the forces flowing upward consolidate and are stopped in the head itself. The quality of thought manifests in the teeth and the quality of feeling in the lips. Likewise, in the significant way that the palate limits the mouth activity at the back, true knowledge of the human being will see how the upward forces work and stopped by the gums pass into speech. Someday people may go beyond looking at the smallest and largest through microscopes or telescopes and instead observe closely what they see in the outer world. And this is not seen today, despite the tools available. If so, people will perceive how thinking lives in the labial sounds and volition in the palatal sounds which influence especially the tongue, and how through those sounds speech, like every other function, becomes an expression of the whole human being. There are people today who try to read the lines of the hand and other such outer phenomena. They try to understand human nature according to symptoms. These things cannot be correctly understood unless it, also, it is also understood that we must look for the whole human being in what one expresses. People must see how speech, which makes individuals into social beings, has an inner movement and configuration that reflects the whole human being. Dental sounds, labial sounds, and palatal sounds do not exist in speech by chance. They occur because the whole human being enters speech through the dental sounds of the head, the labial sounds of the breast, and the palatal sounds of the remaining human organization. Our civilization must, therefore, learn to speak of a revelation of the whole human being. Then spirit will be brought to the whole human being. A way will be found from spirit into the most intimate expressions of our being, our moral life. From this will proceed an inner impulse for the education we truly need. The Gospel of St. John is the most significant document that reveals how we must change our worldview and civilization from that of ancient times. It is the deepest and most beautiful document of Greek culture. From the very first line, this marvelous gospel tells that we must rise to very different ideas, living ideas, before we can learn something about the ancients for our time. In John's gospel, Greek thought and feeling were a garment for the newly arising Christianity. The first line says, quote, In the beginning was the word, uh, logos in Greek, when we hear someone say word today, there is nothing left in our feelings for what the writer felt when writing the sentence in the beginning was the word. 
the feeble, insignificant meaning we give that word, was certainly not in the mind of the gospel writer when he wrote this line. Something very different was meant by word. To us, the word is a weak expression of abstract thoughts. To the Greeks, it was still a call to human volition. When a syllable was spoken, the body of a Greek would tingle and express this syllable throughout one's whole being. The Greeks still had the knowledge that one does not just express oneself by saying, for example, quote, it's all the same to me, close quote. When they heard someone say this, they tingled, prompting them to make a corresponding movement, shrugging the shoulders. Words did not live only in the speech organs, but in the whole human organism of movement. Humankind has forgotten these things. If you want to realize how word, which in ancient Greece still summoned a gesture, can live throughout the human being, you should go to the Eurythmic performance next week. It is just a beginning, a very modest initiative, to bring the word back into the will, to show the human being, on the stage at any rate, even if it is not possible in ordinary life, that the word does in fact live in the movements of one's arms and legs. When we introduce Eurythmia into our schools, it is a humble beginning, even today, to make the word once more an aspect of movement in all of life. In Greece, a very different feeling remained, which had come from the East. There was a tingling or urge in a person to allow volition to reveal itself through the limbs, with every syllable, word or phrase, with the rhythm and measure of that speech. The Greeks realized how the word could become creative in every movement, but they also knew more. To them, words expressed the forces of a cloud formation, plant growth, and natural phenomena in general. Word rumbled in the rolling waves and worked in the whistling wind. Just as the word lives in our breath, leading to a corresponding movement, the Greeks found the word living in the raging winds, in the surging waves, and even in rumbling earthquakes. These were words that poured out of the earth. The paltry ideas that arise in us when we hear word would be very misplaced if I could transfer them to the world's primal beginning. I wonder how we might have begun with words and ideas if at the beginning of the world our feeble ideas of word had been present then and had been thought to be creative. Our words have become intellectualized. They no longer have any creative power. Thus, above all, we must rise to what the Greeks felt as a revelation of the whole human being, a call to the will when they spoke of the word or logos. The Greeks felt logos surging and sounding throughout the cosmos. They could feel what really sounds when one says, quote, In the beginning was the word. Close quote. In all that was conjured up in these words, a living creative force lived not only in humanity, but in wind, wave, cloud, sunlight, and starlight. Everywhere the world and the cosmos reveal the word. Greek gymnastics revealed the word. And in its weaker expression of musical education, there was a vague image of all that was felt in the word. The word worked in Greek wrestling. The vague image of the word in music functioned also in the Greek dances. 
The spirit worked into the nature of humanity, even though it involved a physical gymnastic education. You must realize how weak our ideas have become and begin to see correctly how the grand impulse reverberating in a line such as in the beginning was the word was reduced as it passed into Roman culture, becoming increasingly vague until we feel today only an inner lassitude when speaking of it. In ancient times all wisdom, all science was a commentary on in the beginning was the word Initially the word or logos lived in the ideas that arose in people when they spoke those words, but this increasingly weakened. Then came the Middle Ages, and logos died. Only a dead logos could be tolerated. Educated people were taught in the dead logos, the dead word of decaying Latin. The dying word of speech became the main medium of education until the sixteenth century when certain inner revolt arose against it. So what did civilization mean up to the 16th century and the death of human feeling for the living Logos as contained in the Gospel of John? The attachment to a dead language was merely an outer manifestation of this death of the Logos, If we wanted to briefly describe the course of civilization as it affects education, we would have to say that everything humanity lost is expressed most clearly by the fact that it no longer understands matters such as those in John's Gospel. The course of civilization through the Middle Ages until the 16th century lost the inner force of a text such as John's Gospel and this has led to the inadequacy of humanity today, hence the clamor for educational reforms. The question of education will not get its bearing until people understand the barrenness of the human heart when trying to understand the Gospel of John, comparing this to the intense devotion of those who felt transported from their being into the creative forces of the universe allowing the real meaning of that first sentence of the gospel to reverberate inwardly. We must realize that the 16th and 17th centuries called for a new kind of education because the most godly people, those who most deeply felt the need for a renewal of education, also sensed the loss of the inner elemental life force that enables us to understand spirit. After all, the Gospel of John refers to spirit when speaking of Logos. Indeed, we have reached a point where we long for spirit, but our speech is made up of mere words. We have lost the spirit of the word. This still existed for the Greeks, and their whole being and activity in the world dawned in them when a word was spoken. Similarly, in even earlier times, cosmic activity dawned in human beings when they recognized the divine spiritual ground of the world in universally creative words. These must come to life in each of us if we are to become completely human. And teachers must become whole human beings if they are to educate whole human beings. Teachers must return to an understanding of the word But before we can bring the full mystery of the word before our souls, 
as it functioned and was understood when the real meaning of John's gospel was still experienced. We must realize that spirit was present in the word for ancient human consciousness, even in the weakened words of speech. Spirit poured into the word and became its power. I am not criticizing any period, nor am I saying that one era is less important than any other. I merely want to describe how the ages differ as they follow one another, each having its own special value. But some ages must be described in a more negative way, some more positive. Imagine the darkness that gradually crept over the living impulse in the words of a sentence such as, In the beginning was the word. Consider civilization of the 16th or 17th centuries, and how humankind had to prepare for the growing inner force of freedom. One must also value elements that were absent during certain periods. In a sense, value them properly for the first time. Now consider the fact that humanity had to gain freedom in a fully conscious way, and that this would have been impossible if spirit still poured into words and inspired them as in earlier times. Then we can understand how education in its older form became impossible since Francis Bacon of Verulam made a significant statement around the 17th century that when we face it honestly implies the annihilation of the essence of a phrase such as in the beginning was the word. Before then, there was always a shadow of the Spirit in the Word, or Logos. Bacon asks us to see only an, in quotes, idol in the Word. Not Spirit any longer, but an idol. One could no longer hold the Word in its own power, but had to guard against the intellectualized Word. Once one loses the true essence of the Word, from which knowledge, civilization, and power had been drawn in earlier times, one clings to an idol, or so believed Bacon. We see in this doctrine of idols a shift away from the word during the 16th and 17th centuries. There was a time when humankind not only received the word in word, but also in spirit, indeed the cosmic creative spirit in the word, or logos. Then came the age when the word began to mislead, as an idol does, into intellectualism. Human beings were taught to hold on to outer sensory phenomena lest they fall prey to the idol in the word. Bacon demanded that humankind no longer hold on to what pours into words from the gods, but hold on to the outer world and its dead objects, or at best objects enlivened externally. Humanity is directed away from words to the outer physical world, People are left with only the feeling that we must educate the human being, within whom the spirit is in fact present, but the word is an idol. People today can look with eyes only at what exists externally. Education no longer uses what is truly human, but what exists outside the human being. Along with this comes the problem of education, bringing fierce enthusiasm but also today's tragedy. We see it very typically during the 16th and 17th centuries in persons of Michel de Montaigne and John Locke and along with what was happening here in England, Amos Comenius on the continent. 
In these three men, Montaigne, Locke, Comenius, we could almost see how the human departure from Logos and the turn toward physical objects was the strongest impulse in civilization. Fear of the idol and the word arose in humanity. Logos disappeared. The decisive factor was so-called observation, a a justifiable function, as we shall see in following lectures, but now understood to be sensory observation. We see how anxiously Montaigne, Locke and Comenius desired to divert humanity from the suprasensory and all that lives in the Logos. Locke and Comenius always pointed toward the external expressly and tried to avoid anything not available to the senses. In educating the young, they tried to bring as much of the sensory world as possible. We see Comenius writing books whose purpose is to show that we should not work through the word but through synthetic sensory perceptions. We see how this transition was accomplished and how humanity lost all sense of connection with spirit through the word. We understand that civilization as a whole can no longer inwardly accept something like in the beginning was the word, clinging instead to outer facts of senses. The Logos is accepted today only as tradition. Thus a longing arises, with intense enthusiasm, but also with fearful tragedy, to educate through sensory perception, because the word is considered an idol in Bacon's sense. This longing appeared most typically in Montaigne, Locke, and Comenius. But they also show us from their position of prominence what lives in humanity as a whole. They show us how the mood which is expressed today as a deep longing to return spirit to human beings arose right when humanity could no longer believe in the spirit, but only in the idol of the word, as did Bacon. Educational reform groups, beginning with Montaigne and Comenius and fully justified in those times, must now develop something for the sake of our time that brings spirit to human beings, spirit that has been given form and experienced and carries forces of will, something that sees spirit revealed in the human body and its earthly activities. A new era of education begins with this rediscovery of the suprasensory within the sensory, the rediscovery of spirit that was lost to the word when word became an idol. Montaigne, Locke and Comenius knew very well what education should be. Their programs are just as good as those of modern educational groups, and all the demands for education today were already present in the abstract writings of those three. What we need today, however, is a way that leads us to reality, because no education will develop out of abstract principles or programs, but only from reality. Because human beings are soul and spirit, because our nature is physical, soul and spiritual, reality must return to our lives. And along with reality, spirit will also return to our lives, and only such spirit can sustain an educational art for the future. The end of Lecture 5